0: Coming up on Dr. Kiki's Science Hour, we're talking about what makes science controversial with Josh Rosenau from the National Center for Science Education. That's up next on Dr. Kiki's Science Hour. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This This is TWIT.
1: Bandwidth for Dr. Kiki's Science Hour is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.
0: This is Dr. Kiki's Science Hour with Dr. Kiki. Episode number 93 recorded on Thursday, April 28th, 2011. What's so controversial about science? this episode of dr Kiki's science hour is brought to you by netflix watch thousands of tv episodes and movies streamed to your pc mac or tv instantly plus get dvds by mail in about one business day for your free 30-day trial go to netflix.com forward slash quit welcome everyone to dr Kiki's science hour i'm dr kiki and this is the show where we Dig in to science for an hour with one expert, usually one topic, one hour, one expert. How many shows give this to you? Such a such a wonderful opportunity to just experience a topic in science. Let your mind dwell on one thing for an entire hour. Not so many. But here we are. We're ready to talk about controversies today. You know, it is kind of uh, the human condition to... Um, I guess, I I guess have a bit of schadenfreude to have that that wonderful feeling um, where we are fascinated when there's a controversy, when there is a conflict, we want to know all about it. And so the media dwells on controversies all the time. Uh, It's it's always a controversy or a conflict that gets the media's attention. Um, and, And that's the same in the sciences as it is in any other realm of, of the social sphere. So today to talk about what makes up a scientific controversy and maybe talk a little bit about what we can do uh, to, uh, to uh, put all sides of controversial issues out into the public sphere for conversation is Joshua Rosenau. He, is, he spends his days, according to his blog, defending the teaching of evolution at the National Center for Science Education. He is formally a doctoral candidate at the University of Kansas in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. And when he's not battling creationists or modeling species ranges, he writes about developments in progressive politics and the sciences at his blog, Thoughts from Kansas on Science Blogs. Without any further ado, I'd like to welcome Joshua to the show. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us.
1: Hi all! Thanks for having me on.
0: You're welcome. All right, so let's just get 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 started here with some uh, some information about you. How did you get interested in studying evolution?
1: I I got into this. I was like three years old and watching David Attenborough on uh, Life on Earth. And just wandered in as my parents were watching this, you know, great nature TV, and and fell in love. And for the first you know, five years or so of my life, if you asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I would tell you, "Oh, I want to be David Attenborough." And at <laughs> some point, my parents had to explain to me that 's not actually a job description, and I had to sort of recalibrate my my hopes and dreams. but it turns out that you can at least work as a biologist and study interesting uh, you know, natural history and biology, and went off to college and spent summers working at a, a museum in, in Chicago studying the, uh, the evolutionary history of Philippine rodents by cutting their penises off and looking at them under a microscope.
0: Oh, wow. That's so one that way to fun. go at evolution, right?
1: Yeah, and that's the sort of thing where you, when, when you realize that that's actually a fun summer, uh, you sort of have to go <laughs> on to grad school then.
0: <laughs> yeah, that was fun. We must continue. Yeah.
1: There are not, not a whole lot of ways to really satisfy that. <laughs>
0: So, uh, and and then grad school. Where what did you end up working in and, and, uh, and continuing to study?
1: It sort of picked up from the tail end of research that, that had started there with the the rodents, and asking why why are genitalia so such good evolutionary characters? Turns out to get into interesting issues in the forces of disruption and also ecological interactions between species of how, not in that case, it's sexual competition, but how do species that are competing with each other in the wilds, how does that affect their evolutionary history? And so that's where the, the species range modeling came in, to understand how competition played, uh, influenced the geographic range of species.
0: Okay. And then uh, with, with grad school, um, it, what was it about 2005, you started, um, started, uh, I guess working politically uh, as in addition to scientifically in the in the area of, of evolution. Can you explain uh, what the what the environment was like at the time and what took you into politics?
1: Yeah, I, I started at the University of Kansas in two thousand, which was right after a creationist school board had gotten voted out of office. Um in and, you know, I, I got there, I was looking at apartments in, in Lawrence, which is the sort of liberal community within that catchment area. If you mm-hmm. lived a little bit further north, you'd wind up in Lincoln. If you lived a little bit further east and north, you'd wind up in Ann Arbor. But if you lived in Kansas, you were, in, were sort of a liberal or of, of one form or other, you'd probably wind up in Lawrence at some point. And so there I was. and. People there, if I would mention, oh, I'm going to be studying evolutionary biology, they would get these pained looks on their faces like, oh, no, you know, we're sorry, that'll never happen again, don't worry about it. Uh, and I said, okay, fine, you know, I'll just do my research and not worry about it. And then in 2005, another creationist school board got elected, or 2004, which was conveniently right around the time that I had started writing a blog. And all of a sudden, I had a whole bunch of stuff to write about. <laughs> yeah, and it was this realization that the University of Kansas has one of the natural history museums in the country at a at a university, and people come from all over the world to look at the specimens that are there. You know, most of what goes on at a natural history museum is not the dioramas that you see when you go in through the public entrance. If you get behind the scenes, it's just drawers and drawers and drawers of skinned mice and skinned sparrows and you know just. And little skulls sitting in boxes, and yeah. that's the raw material of of a lot of evolutionary biology. You go in there, you take measurements, you extract DNA, and you figure out, okay, what does this tell us about the evolutionary history of these groups? And so people come from all over the world to be grad students, to be professors, or to just spend a couple weeks in that collection gathering data. But you get a few blocks away, and there's no, there's no no conception of what evolution is about or, or how important it is and how central this resource is that's in their own backyard. And uh, that, that brought with it this realization that I, I should perhaps try to do something about it. That was a problem and a, a failure on the part of perhaps the university but and, and of scientists and that it was having really direct and obvious impacts on, on society in Kansas at that point. So so I got involved with, the, um, there's a group called Kansas Citizens for Science that was doing a lot of work to help educate the State Board of Education and to make sure that the standards that were passed were not, would not be creationist standards, would not encourage teachers to, uh, to undermine evolution education. And through the blog and through that and through other work, I, I contributed how I could and turned out that I, I liked that and probably liked it more than I was really liking the research I was doing. Yeah. And when a chance came up to do it for a living here at NCSE,
0: I, uh, I took it. That's excellent. And so you've been working at NCSE ever since. Um, the uh, I I have I have to just add the the your comment about the drawers and drawers of, of specimens in museums. Um, it it just I, I always I I love the kind of musty smell of of museum drawers and the the fact that you can look through and find all sorts of different things and there are constantly stories coming out of museums and schools of some grad student discovering a new species in a box or a drawer that just hadn't been cataloged yet and you know I, I just i love those um those those little gems of stories because they they're, they're they're they are treasure troves of information and there's it it just uh, invaluable in the information that they hold. Um, so I'm glad that you and other people like you are out trying to um, trying to help uh, communicate the importance of of museums and evolutionary science. So thanks. Right.
1: Um, Support your so local it, museums. What can I say?
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so let's get into the question. So we, we've kind of talked a little bit about you know the the environment and how how things uh, of what brought you into where you are now. Um, evolution. When people think of scientific controversies, evolution is really um, I think at the at the tip of, of people's tongues. Either either evolution, there are three evolution, vaccines, or climate change. I think are the the three main topics. Um, what is it that makes something a scientific controversy? Now, you did a presentation on this uh, recently. So uh, I think I'd, I'd, I'd like to kind of start with the idea of what is science? You know, what, it, what it, can we describe the scientific method? What is science that's not controversial? What is incontroversial about science?
1: The, the way I like to think of it is sort of a series of concentric circles where at the middle of it you have things, ideas like gravity that are just so well-accepted that means someone might come along someday and revolutionize our understanding of why objects with mass are attracted to each other, but somehow or other, they are. Uh, The details can still need to be worked out, but that that basic idea is so essential and so central to all of of science that you just have to treat it as 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 true. In general, yeah. uh, you know, science. I would say is a distinction that I make is between the idea of science as an encyclopedia, uh, you know, a set of facts that we we memorize, that we write down in books, or that we can look up in books. Which I think is often how science is taught, but is not necessarily how science is done by scientists. How scientists think of science, uh, and I think that. A better way to think of it is in terms of science as a process as a way of uh, evaluating claims and of removing bad ideas and when you've removed enough bad ideas you're going to be somewhere pretty close to the right idea but you might not be there yet so science there's sometimes a tendency to think of science as a way of getting at truth i think it's Mm -hmm. better thought of as a way of getting away from falsehoods
0: I think that's I think that's pretty good. So, I mean I usually I, I hear people saying, Well, science is always trying to prove stuff. If you're a scientist, you're trying to prove things. And in reality, science is the process of disproving things.
1: Right. Yeah, and you sort of, you, you might asymptotically approach truth, but you're not to, to treat science as as the truth I think is, is misunderstanding that the process by which you test claims. Because it's really, you're, you're putting forward a claim that you, that you would like to be able to prove false. And the fact that the alternative, whatever your alternative is that you're proposing that you didn't prove false, uh, the fact that it's not false doesn't mean that it's right. No. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, know, you, can, you can winnow away more falsehoods still after that. And that's why you know, when I talk about gravity, yeah, I mean, something, something like gravity has to be true. Objects with mass are attracted to each other, and we've known that for long enough now that that statement is true. But why that's true turns out to get into some really tricky issues. Uh, you know, Newton had some ideas and Einstein had some ideas, but it turns out if you apply the standard model of gravity that works for planets and baseballs and all sorts of other things, you try to apply that to electrons, it doesn't work. And if you try to apply the standard model as it applies to electrons and other subatomic particles to planets and baseballs and stuff, that doesn't work. So you've got things like string theory where people are trying to, to come up with some, some way of meshing all that together. So the basic gist of our understanding of gravity is, is true in some real sense. But the details, some, something about our understanding of gravity has to be wrong because it doesn't work for everything. It only works for something.
0: Right, right. But we don't know exactly what aspect of it is wrong yet. We still have to figure that out. We have to figure out which parts still need to be disproved. And that when we get the technical technological abilities to get there, we'll be able to, uh, I guess, prune the, the theory of gravity a, a bit more carefully.
1: Yeah, and the idea yeah. that you know, the idea that there's things, some things that we don't yet understand about gravity, certainly undermine the basic gist of it. Whatever unification comes from the the efforts for quantum gravity and these other things, it still has to explain everything that current gravitational theories explain. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, those theories may not be perfect, but they're a lot better than what came before them. And ideas can... So that's why these are these core ideas at the center of, of our scientific understanding. And there are other things, you know, string theory, that's a little bit more further out towards the fringes of our understanding of, of science. Something like string theory, according to a lot of the physicists that I talk to, is probably right. Which of the various string theory models is the best? You know, whether there'll be, the the predictions of them are gonna be borne out by uh, super colliders like the LHC. It remains to be seen, we don't know yet. Uh, and New results from those may force us to do some revisions of, of the details of those models, in ways that uh, that we're probably not going to have to revise the basic idea that objects with mass are attracted to one another.
0: Right. So, do you think? Um, oh, go ahead.
1: I'm oh, sorry. No.
0: I was just going to ask: Is is something? Would you define something? Um, you know, string theory. It's still it. it it's still a theoretical. Theory. It hasn't gotten a lot of. It doesn't have experimental evidence behind it yet. So, would you consider string theory controversial at this point? I mean, the fact that the the people in the in the scientific community and the general public are talking about it as if it's already something that we should that that has been proven.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think at this point. Uh, I don't, you know, people haven't been able to devise an experiment given existing technology that would let them come up with a definitive test that you know, if string theory is right, we should get this result, and if we get some other result, then it has to be wrong. So it hasn't, it hasn't been disproven. It also hasn't been put to a really compelling test yet. Right. Uh, and it presumably will be at some point in the not-too-distant future. So if I were teaching a physics class and students were asking about it, I would treat it as a controversial idea that you know there there are different questions that are out there. There are different ways that people try to are trying to address the, the issues that string theory is meant to address. Some we have to, there, there has to be something that explains the, the divergence that we see between gravity at macroscopic levels and at subatomic levels. Whether whether string theory is is that unifying principle does does remain to be seen. But you you said is it a theoretical theory, which was an interesting phrasing.
0: <laughs> well, the the uh, reason I the reason I use that is because string theory, it they call they call it theory, and in, in physics, often the, the the word theory is used when it should be hypothesis. Um, at this point, there's a lot of I, there's a lot of theory behind string theory, but it has doesn't have the evidence behind it. Um, that you would normally expect
1: right i mean yeah and at this point there's there has, hasn't been anything there, there are no observations that contradict it which in that sense is good you know it's uh if we already knew things that made it implausible that would be a major problem for it mm-hmm. but you know a theory is is that the word theory is often misused And we have this idea that my theory that JFK was shot by aliens from Roswell... (laughs) ...then when we talk about a string theory or the theory of evolution, right? Mm -hmm. The way that we use the word theory in common conversation is really different than than what scientists mean when they talk about the theory. Because in in science, a theory is a well-supported explanatory framework that integrates data, it integrates observations, it integrates at different levels, you know, a, a lot of different knowledge that we have and so I, I don't know that it's unfair to say that, that string theory does that uh whether it will be uh, as successful as proponents hope remains to be seen but you know hopefully
0: right right so what other what other topics um we have string theory evolution is obviously one that we'll probably dig into a little bit more during the show um is what what other what other Scientific ideas are out there that you'd really uh, that you would really discuss in this light of controversial or not controversial.
1: I, you know, in, a, in a context of talking about global, of uh, evolution, global warming often comes up uh, in parallel, and both of those are are noteworthy because they're not they're controversial in general conversations, but they're not scientific controversies. For both mm-hmm. of them, if you if you talk to professional scientists working in the the relevant fields in biology and climate science and ask them what the what the level of support is for each of those ideas it, you'll you'll find virtually no dissent from the basic idea the basic idea that all living things share a common ancestor of some sort the details uh, of that are controversial what what do we mean by a common ancestor, what, do we, what, what would we find if we went back two billion years and started looking for that common ancestor? Is it a population of cells? Is it a bunch of chromosomes that are flopped around by a bunch of different cells all over the place? Is it actually one lineage? You know, That gets into this, this sort of controversial topic. But the basic idea of common ancestry is not controversial. The idea that the mm-hmm. planet is getting warmer because of human activity is not controversial among climate scientists so but so the controversy there is more social and political and religious philosophical perhaps but it's not a scientific controversy on that one
0: yeah i think that's an inter a, a really important and interesting distinction is the fact that you have these two different levels where a topic can be controversial, you have the social level, so is it politically or religiously or societally in some way uh, questionable by some groups of groups of people, or is it a controversy between the scientists because some scientists are questioning the data, so you have these two different sides to what could actually make something controversial. Is that what we're basically coming down to?:
1: Yeah. And then, you know, so the, the idea of, you know, gravity is not controversial. Evolution is not scientifically controversial, the, the basic framework of ideas. But then within evolution, there are certainly controversies. There are questions mm-hmm. about what, what, what do we mean when we talk about the origin of life? What do we mean when we talk about the last common ancestor of all modern living things? What are the processes that dominate evolutionary patterns over the very long term? Over relatively short terms, uh, what are the evolutionary mechanisms that drive the development of novel anatomical structures? You know, these sorts of questions about the, the pace and the tempo of evolution—all uh, those can be controversial. And whether there are questions about when when it's appropriate to or relevant to bring up those controversial issues, you know, mm-hmm. in the ninth grade biology class, right? Do you jump into that or do you really focus on those sort of core ideas that are not controversial?
0: Yeah. So what is appropriate for a particular particular level of understanding or of education? Um, And if you're talking about what you're going to introduce to a ninth grade biology class, you know, then you can take that take it one step further of, you know, what what are you going to introduce to the science writer or the journalist that's covering a story?
1: Yeah, and you know, it's a lot of this is, is more a question of uh, science communication perhaps than of, of just pure science itself. There's, you're talking to a journalist, what do you, who are they writing for? What's their background? What's their audience's background? And. What, is your, what does the audience need to understand about this? It's often easier to... If, you, if something seems controversial, if it seems contentious, it can sometimes be easier to pitch to a journalist and say, hey, you should write this story because, ooh, controversy. But sometimes that can backfire and make something that... and can have then policy implications because the public perceives this issue now to be controversial because there are all these stories that are supposed to oh this is the missing link that's going to revolutionize all of all of evolutionary biology and when people see enough of these stories that are supposed to be revolutionary and maybe some of them turn out to be a lot less revolutionary than the initial claim was they're still right. interesting fossils there are still interesting discoveries it doesn't undermine the basic framework of evolution but it can uh, have an unfortunate effect on the way that the public sees these issues
0: right so instead of going instead of going from you know the most important missing quote i always do quotes that don 't make it onto the audio version of the show as i 've been informed by the chat room um, the most important missing link uh, discovery in the in the human in the human ancestry human lineage um, all of a sudden it becomes well it 's like a a cousin. It's, it, it was a missing link to some other lineage. It's a cousin. It's not quite that important for to, to our understanding of where we came from, but it's, you know, it's still important overall to our understanding of the, the bigger picture. And all of a sudden the story has to backtrack and that backtracking, instead of making first page news suddenly is on the, you know, somewhere page five in a little tiny blurb.
1: Right. And a lot of times you know the the how how a topic is presented as controversial uh can play into misconceptions that people have about science in general or about a particular field so if someone talks about a missing link, that implies that we were really missing something that we needed uh, and you know when i'm when i 'm talking about evolutionary history i i don 't use terms like that except. In this sort of setting, where I'm sort of making fun of it, uh, I'll right. I'll even try not to talk about a transitional fossil. I might talk about a transitional form that, because what you're finding in the fossil record is almost surely not the direct ancestor of any modern living thing. And just on average, it's unlikely right. that you're going to find it. Right. And right, so and, there, and there and there is fossil- that
0: miss there is that misunderstanding. People hear the, uh, the the term missing or transitional and immediately apply their understanding to that concept. And all of a sudden it's like, well, this fossil was obviously an ancestor, obviously in between.
1: Right, and it's useful to be able to, to shift that around and say, you know, this is what we found here is a fossil that represents the the set of characters that the ancestor of all modern members of of this group, whatever it might be, uh, had to have possessed. This is is a cousin, this is a relative of that, It, it shares those traits, it's not necessarily that direct ancestor. And we don't need that direct ancestor to validate the idea that all modern living things share a common ancestor. What this does is show how that process worked, how you could have gotten from A to B whether or not you actually have that direct link or whether you have something that was related but not identical to
0: right so how do you how do you inform the public how do you get around when you're talking about something that is um, you know when you're when you're talking about a missing link or a transitional fossil something that you know is one probably of many you've uh, you've found a fossil and it is something that you're going to have to use to be indicative of others similar to it. And, um, you know, place it somewhere in relative, respective to, to other fossils, to the entire uh, uh, phy- phylogeny that you're looking at. Um, you know, how do you, how do you get around that and get, get, get around people's pre, uh, preconceptions of what a missing link implies?
1: It's, it's useful to think of, um, uh, you know, sort of a normal genealogy that a lot, you know, most people at some point in their schooling were told to go home and, you know, find out who all their cousins were and make the, the family tree. We have mm-hmm. a, an intuitive sense of how that works. And the, what we're doing with, in, in a phylogeny, in a, a tree of life, is exactly the same basic idea. You, uh, it's just on a much larger scale and a lot of the basic ideas of things like uh, DNA paternity testing, the same techniques that you can use to trace back the family tree of, of human beings, you can if you put in DNA from a chimpanzee, you put in DNA from an orangutan, it still works. It's, it's just a bigger family tree. Mm-hmm. And thinking about it in those terms can help break through a lot of these things. You know, the idea of, oh, well, you know, if if people descended from monkeys and have come there are still monkeys around, if you're thinking of it in, in those terms of family tree, that doesn't, the question doesn't make sense, right? It's like, well, if we all descended from my grandmother, why you know, my cousins and I all, all have the same grandmother, why is my grandmother still around? Well, why, why not, right? <laughs> it's not a problem anymore to say that my cousins are, you know, a chimpanzee is just a very, very distant cousin, and why shouldn't those cousins still be able to exist at the same time that I do. And it, it helps then you're not thinking a lot of times mm-hmm. people when they're trying to make fun of the idea of evolution, they, they will have a picture of like a half dog, half cat and be like, well, is this the transitional form between? <laughs> and it's like, no, because each of those are, you're, that's sort of trying to morph modern living things and the idea of evolution is not that morphing of the modern forms of the highly derived forms with all of the unique traits that they have, but of finding that the common ancestor that has the traits that both of those would share, but that doesn't have all of the unique traits that came in on their independent lineages.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah I, I wonder though, how we can um, i mean we, we can talk to people and who are open. To learning and who are open to accepting new ideas, or to considering ideas that they haven't heard before. But how do we? Um, there's there's someone named Sullivan in the chat room who's talking with uh, Darth Emma and says there are people who are really who aren't really interested in progress in science. How do we talk to those people, the the people who refuse to hear the idea that a transitional species is not just, you know, a dog cat hybrid. you know how do how do how do we how do we talk to those people because those are the people in not in the scientific sphere but within the public sphere that um need to be convinced frankly
1: i i think a a key aspect of it is really making it relevant to to people and how that works is going to be different for different folks uh i've seen work that people did with focus groups that found that talking about medical applications of evolutionary biology was a really effective way to get people interested in the topic. That if you if you said to them, well, you know, you know anything from development of, of cancer drugs to the flu vaccine, all these sorts of things rely on a doctor being able to understand evolution and that on, on medical researchers understanding evolution, that People become a lot more willing to have their kids learn about evolution. They want to learn more about it. They're, they're more willing to accept that it's real if they understand that it has practical implications. And so a lot of times it's sort of, um, it can be effective to work backwards towards acceptance of these ideas. Uh, the same thing happens around climate change, where people mm-hmm. have done studies where they, they divide people into two groups and you give each of them a short essay that they have to read. And one of the essays says that the solution to climate change has to be in terms of a trade program and an economy-wide carbon tax that's going to be really oppressive, and it's going to infringe on people's individual freedom and so forth. And the other group gets a, an essay that says, well, to deal with, with, with climate change, we really just need to build nuclear power plants, and it's going to be cheap, and no one has to change their standard of living. This was done, obviously, before the, the uh, tsunami in Japan. Yeah. <laughs> the results might be different today if you did it.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: But at the time when this was done, you then, if you ask people whether they think global warming is real or not, after they've read one of these two essays, the people who read an essay saying that solving climate change is going to be easy and non-intrusive were more willing to accept that climate change is happening than people who were told that the solution is going to be this intrusive, elaborate, complicated process. So how people, the, the, the reasoning process that people go through uh, in deciding whether, how they want to react to a scientific idea is not often as rational as, as we might assume or as we might hope.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: you know, knowing that it can be useful because then you can turn around and you can say in the case of evolution that something like Taxol, which has been used to treat hundreds of thousands of patients, has made jillions of dollars for the, the the patent holder. I think it's Bristol-Myers Swim. It was originally this, this chemical uh, that's used to treat, uh, I think, ovarian cancer, cervical cancer, other pretty horrible cancers. Originally was isolated from the the Pacific yew, which is an endangered species, slow-growing species from the Pacific Northwest. That. Uh, it was only could only be isolated from the bark, which means that you had to take the the bark off of the the slow growing tree thereby killing it right so that 's a problem yeah. and that synthesizing it in the lab from scratch from you know, readily available things that you can buy from a chemical supply company was took fifty or sixty steps, and the yields were tiny and from if harvesting every yew tree alive would not have given you enough taxol. For a single course of treatment for one patient so this is a problem mm-hmm. and pharmaceutical chemists were thinking about this and trying to figure out what to do and realized okay you know this same protein that, that protein is produced by some gene and that gene has some analog in other related species there's a common ancestry to that gene mm-hmm. and if we can find some other protein that's produced that won't necessarily be taxol but it'll be kind of like taxol produced in some related species and it turns out that the european yew, which you might have in your front yard it's a common ornamental shrub from the needles which it sheds and can be harvested harmlessly you can extract this compound that isn't taxol but that's a lot like taxol and with a couple of steps in the lab you can turn it into this life-saving medicine and the only reason that that works is because of evolution.
0: Right, because somebody understood enough about evolution to be able to say, "Well, let's look at this problem a little differently. Not look at it as what are we going to do about this, about harming this tree, but what can we do about finding some some other way around it." Right. Yeah, and they, and they couldn't have done that without understanding evolution and evolutionary theory.
1: Yeah, and I mean, anytime a, a scientist, anytime a medical researcher, or someone doing basic biology research uses a model organism. Every time they use Drosophila to study genetics or they mm-hmm. use roundworms to study developmental biology, implicit in that is this idea of, of common ancestry because the same genes that control, that turn on development of the eye in a fruit fly turn on development of the eye in a human being. And you can take, you can take out that, that gene from a mouse and take the gene from a a fruit fly and put it into that mouse genome, and the the eye will develop normal, which is crazy, right? And the Mm -hmm. only reason that you should see anything like that is because there's this common ancestor, that if you go back 600 million years, there was some common ancestor to fruit flies and to mice that had this little eye spot that was developing, and this gene turned on to say where that eye spot should develop and all of the other machinery that gives us this, the, the sort of eye that we have and that gives the fruit fly the compound eyes that they have. Mm. Totally, I mean, anatomically different in almost as many ways as they possibly could be. But still, because they share that common ancestry and because the, the development started from that, in that way, they share that, that gene uh, at the point where they, they begin being expressed. And understanding that has important biological and medical implications.
0: Yeah, yeah, it absolutely does. There was a, a comment in the chat room that uh, we need to teach, you know, we need to be teaching this stuff to our students in elementary school. Um, you know, uh, but that's that's where a lot of controversy is uh, is happening right now. And that's where there's actually a pretty, pretty big battle going on at the moment um, for elementary and high school teaching of, of evolution in in biology classrooms around the country, um, I need to take a quick word from our sponsor. say a quick thank you and um, once I after I do that we 'll come back and talk a little bit about what 's going on in the uh, in the classrooms around the country and the teaching of evolution versus uh, versus not evolution versus creationism. So I'd like to take a quick moment to say thank you to Netflix. This episode of Dr. Kiki Science Hour is brought to you by Netflix. You can watch thousands of TV episodes and movies and have them streamed to your PC, Mac, or TV instantly. You can also get DVDs in the mail in about one business day. And you can save a lot of time and money. I think the instant streaming is pretty cool. In fact, I do it a lot at my own home. I I stream things to my television. We have a a media center computer, so I stream it to my big screen TV in my living room and can watch movies or TV series that I wasn't able to keep up with when they actually came out. Uh, You can have them streamed also to your Netflix-ready device, Xbox 360, PS3, Nintendo Wii, I have a Wii, I do, Um, and uh, I use it sometimes. Oh, dear. Sometimes the copy just does not come out the way that I want to to read it. So anyway, you can watch as many movies as you want anytime you want on Netflix. There are never any late fees, no due dates, which is great for forgetful people like me. Um, My Netflix streaming pick of the week for this week, I'd love you to uh, check out Blue Planet The uh, Deep Oceans uh, episode documentary for Blue Planet is actually uh, narrated. The series is narrated by David Attenborough. And it's just a really, really fascinating, beautiful investigation, description of our deep oceans, the deep seas around us on this planet. You know two thirds of our planet is made of water. And there are some very deep, hardly unexplored areas that we know little about. And uh, you can find out a lot more about it by checking out this documentary on Netflix. Um, Let's see. You can pick this from the streaming list. It's pretty available, pretty easy to find. And you can instantly watch the movie or if you choose to watch something else, it's really easy. Choose from thousands of TV episodes and other movies when you register for a free trial membership. That's right, I said free. So go to Netflix, netflix.com forward slash twit, T-W-I-T. That's netflix.com forward slash twit. Sign up for your free trial right now. Go do it today. And we thank Netflix for their support of Dr. Kiki's Science Hour. So let's get back to the, to the show, everybody. Um, in terms of what's happening right now, you got uh, Josh, we're speaking with Josh Rosenau from the National Center for Science Education. And you got involved in the political sphere of, um, I, I mean, it is a battle, a battle to keep teaching evolution as uh, science in our science classrooms um, versus it being taught as uh, creationism or intelligent design. Um, recently, what's been going on? Can you tell us a little bit about what's been going on in Louisiana and uh, their state legislature? So in
1: 2008, there was a, a bill passed there that's part of this family of uh, what's sometimes referred to as academic freedom acts. Although, uh, as you were saying before, uh, we usually put air quotes around that, which those of you watching this can see and those of you listening know were there. Uh, <laughs> because it, it, the idea is to expand, the, the claim is that these expand the academic freedom of teachers to present controversial topics and to encourage students to critically analyze and so forth, all of these things that are you know, on, their, on their face totally laudable and totally good ideas. In practice, though, these laws single out the teaching revolution, uh, in in some cases also global warming, and human cloning gets thrown in there. I think as a reference to stem cell research, but it could be that they've just watched too much Gattaca. Right. (laughs) Uh, And so the idea of the Louisiana bill is that, in addition, once a teacher has presented uh, the standard textbook that they would be allowed to, uh, to bring in whatever supplement they might choose to, to add on to that, which before the law passed, they could probably have done also. You know, if they wanted to bring in a copy of National Geographic and show the kids a, a recent article about the stuff that they're studying from the textbook, why not? I, I can't imagine anyone objecting to that. Uh, but there are also things that, are, uh, that, that should not be used. There's a group in Louisiana called the Louisiana Family Forum that has published what they call a textbook addenda that cite creationist sources. Uh, One of them cites a guy named Malcolm Bowden, who one of the the first things that turns up about him when you start Googling for his background is that he's a geocentrist. Mm -hmm. They cite the the work of a young earth creationist geologist who has written a feasibility study for Noah's Ark. You know, it's just... Deeply questionable stuff, where they're trying, and that is intended as an addendum to the the established textbooks to sort of somehow correct the record. Uh, you know, in, in addition, groups like the Discovery Institute publish yeah. uh, uh, supplemental textbooks about evolution. There's a pandas and people that was at issue in the the legal trial in, uh, in Dover, Pennsylvania, in 2005. It, it, you know, those shouldn't show up in classrooms. And so a law that makes it harder to get bad supplements out of classrooms is is troublesome. So the, the law passed in 2008. It had almost no opposition. I think three people voted against it in the state uh, House and it had no votes against it in the state Senate. Hmm. And since then, they've been working on implementing it. The tricky thing about it is it doesn't require anyone to do anything different than they are already doing. A teacher doesn't want to use a supplement. They don't have to. If yeah. they want to teach only evolution, then that's fine. But if a teacher wants to start bringing in creationist materials, uh, you know, unless there's a parent or a student in the community who can serve as a plaintiff in a lawsuit, you know, even though it's unconstitutional, there may not be a way to stop it if there's not a plaintiff.
0: So basically the law, it allows a certain amount of freedom of speech for the teacher by... Just allowing them allowing them to bring in whatever materials, even if they are not necessarily scientific or um, uh, serve to um, supplement the, the teaching of scientific ideas in a scientific manner
1: right and, and, it, and it, sort yeah. of misrepresenting this idea we 're talking about scientific controversies and to make. to to use these supplements as a way to make it seem as if evolution were more controversial than it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and to to bring in things that are possibly not really... that are not in textbooks perhaps because they're not really appropriate for a a high school classroom. They're too advanced or they rely on knowledge that students aren't ready for yet or or haven't had the background for in other classes or whatever. Uh, A judgment that the school district might have made about what what the curriculum ought to be the teacher can essentially set that aside to pursue their own agenda
0: yeah so if if for example with this with the passage of this law if a teacher were teaching about the solar system and wanted to bring in and and happened to be a geocentrist someone who believes that the earth is the center of everything as opposed to the sun being the center of the solar system um, they could bring in supplemental material on geocentrism and say, but there is this other idea. And it ha- it's been published. And um, right, there are books. And, yeah, there are books. Books students read.
1: And you know, in, in judging whether something like that's appropriate, we, there's a, a paper that our executive director published a few years back talking about, you know, controversial issues in the classroom and this, the, the slogan that creationists often use of, well, just teach the controversy. Yes. And yeah. the, the criteria that she talks about in terms of, you know, is there a real controversy and is it appropriate for the classroom to think about, you know, is, is this topic of interest to your audience, right? I mean, that's, that's the first question you should ask in any sort of communicate, science communication or any communicating in general is the controversy primarily scientific is you know, or or is it as we were saying before about global warming and evolution is it more of a political or religious or philosophical controversy is there is the information on both sides equally accessible is there only you know this one book that is really hard to get because it's self-published and you have to write to the author personally and on one side and everything else is available for free through PubMed and other freely available sources of information or in libraries uh, is the quality of the same it, Is the material of equal quality on both sides is it peer-reviewed on one side and self-published on the other is it something is, is the the issue at hand something that the audience can understand mm-hmm. we were talking earlier about uh you know the, the earliest life on earth and what it means to talk about the the last universal common ancestor well to talk about that in a high school classroom if the students don't already understand evolution, they're not going to understand that conversation. And so, it's that's something that it's an important and interesting conversation to have. But you have to start off with a basic understanding of evolution, and then you know maybe in a high school in a college class, start talking about the ideas of you know what what do we mean when we talk about this last universal common ancestor. Mm-hmm. You know that these are the sorts of things that the having having these sorts of uh, so-called academic freedom laws makes it easy to get around those basic principles, that a school district might have a policy already saying, if you want to bring in supplements, it has to meet certain standards in terms of quality and availability and accessibility to students. Uh, And a teacher, laws like these make it harder to enforce those perfectly sensible rules. Which is why, and it's exciting right now that just today there was a rally at the Louisiana State Capitol led by a high school student named Zach Copland who has gotten the legislator to file a bill that would repeal this law, the Louisiana Science Education Act. And he and uh, a few dozen supporters were out there knocking on doors in the Capitol and urging the legislators there to repeal this law and to recognize mm-hmm. that it was a, a, a poor choice when they passed it the first time around I, I wish him luck i i 'll I'll be interesting to see what what comes of this uh, i i can 't say that I have the greatest hopes that it will succeed just because it passed so overwhelmingly two years ago but yeah he 's right, and that should count for something
0: yeah yeah absolutely so there and there are also what is it forty seven Nobel laureates who have written a letter to the the state yeah. legislature as well, so he's he 's not alone there are there are many others who are <laughs> pleading with the Louisiana government to, to change their mind about this. Um, and Louisiana is not alone in having this kind of a a, a political environment where the, the legislature is considering laws, passing bills uh, to turn them into law. Um, and there's additionally uh, state school boards who are who are looking at uh, deciding what textbooks to use for classrooms. Uh, Texas is in the process of approving, um, approving textbooks at the moment. Um, do, you think that, do you think Texas is going to end up, and the reason Texas is such a, a, a pivotal state and why people talk about it so much is that it's a very big state. It has lots of students and whatever decisions Texas makes can potentially sway the textbook publishers to publish certain books and not others
1: we watched Texas really carefully for that for that exact reason, and they they new science standards in two thousand and eight excuse me in two thousand and nine uh, which was itself a, a contentious and elaborate process. We were there in January and in march of, of two thousand and nine. They had also had public hearings in November of the previous year and something like 36 hours of public testimony that they heard almost all of it focused on how how evolution was covered and on a standard that had been in, in the old standards and was removed by the expert panels doing the science the standard writing uh in 2009 but the old standards said, talked about that students should know the the strengths and weaknesses of scientific ideas yeah and in 2003, the board had jumped on this and said, oh, well, you need to teach the strengths and weaknesses of evolution. They weren't saying that about it, gravity or cell theory or atomic theory, just the strengths and weaknesses of evolution. Even though right. it was applied, it was in the chemistry standards, it was in the physics standards, it was every place. Uh, and so that, that was removed and ultimately replaced with something about the uh, teaching students all sides of the evidence, whatever that means. As well as specific standards attacking the teaching evolution, uh, you know talking about sudden appearance in the fossil record and so forth and and saying that students should learn the evidence for and against the existence of global warming, which the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has said is, is unequivocal that the the globe is warming you know, so I don't even know if I were a textbook writer how I would deal with that, uh, you know, being asked <laughs> yeah. to provide evidence against something that's unequivocal, but there it is. And so this year they were supposed to do new textbook adoption, but it turns out that the state doesn't have any money, and so, huh. as, as many states don't. So instead of buying all new textbooks, they're doing textbook supplements, online mm. supplements that, that the local districts can choose from that would basically cover anything that was added to the standards it wasn't in the standards that were in effect in 2003 last time they did textbook adoption. And uh, you know that's been interesting because it's it's a lot easier to write a supplement than to write a whole textbook from scratch. Yeah. And so you know we, we were always expecting we were we were worried that some of these things that the Discovery Institute or the Foundation for Thought and Ethics that publishes of pandas and people that they might put together a supplement uh, that, you know, for approval in Texas. And the Foundation for Thought and Ethics actually had put their name in as, as uh, wanting to submit a supplement, but at the last minute they pulled out and said that no, they were not interested. But there is still a group called uh, International Databases, which for those of us who follow creationism, the, the acronym ID tends to jump out when, when people use it in, in these sorts of ways. This group, International Databases, that they registered their website uh, in December of last year, right when the, just before the names of people who had submitted supplements came out. We can't find any incorporation papers. We can't find any record of this ever existing before, or ever doing anything. Huh. All of a sudden submits this supplement that is basically a series of, of PowerPoint slides printed out as PDFs. Okay. And it's just filled with creations. It's you know it'll say that oh you know intelligent design has to be regarded as a valid alternative or as you know a viable idea. It'll it just mangles basic concepts. Uh, it, there are things it's supposed to cover that doesn't cover. It's just it's a weird weird document in all sorts of ways. There are mm-hmm. big sections of it that are basically travelogue about oh wow it's great to be in Glacier National Park or oh Silverton mining in Colorado is interesting, which it may be, but I don't entirely know what that's supposed to tell us about the biology class. And it's looking like we're still trying to track down the, the, the background of that, but it looks like it's, it was written by a group called the Intelligent Design Network based out of uh, New Mexico that has previously pushed for anti-evolution legislation. In that state, the, the group that wrote the creation of Science Standards in Kansas in 2005 was a sort of a sister group to this one uh, with the same name in Kansas. It seems like they're probably tied in with this supplement somehow, although we're still trying to figure out all the, the, the background on this uh, sort of sketchy supplement publisher. Hmm. Uh, but, you know, it, it's a lot easier for them to get a foot in the door that way than to have to write a whole textbook. Yeah. And so it's, a, it's an interesting process, especially, you know, a lot of states are, making, are looking at what to do about electronic textbooks and uh, thinking about ways to either have electronic supplements or to just move to, you know, give every student uh, an iPad and, and let them write their own, you know, let them download the, the textbook like that. Yeah. There are a lot of possibilities there, but it also, the more you lower the, those barriers of, to, of entry, the easier it could be for for creationist material to slip in, so so we have to stay vigilant.
0: Yeah, how do you, this 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 feels to me like it's a giant chess game, or you know, a real a real war between two sides. Who you know, you have they. There's the intelligent design and creationist side that definitely have their agenda, and they're oh. not going to listen to the. Um, you know, the, the discussion of this is science. It's, it has nothing to do with religion. This is science. And so we're teaching science in the science classroom. They're not going to listen to that kind of uh, an argument. Um, do, you, do you ever just feel in, in continuing to push forward and staying ever, ever vigilant against, um, you know, supplements slipping into the curriculum or whatever textbooks are going to be in the classroom um, do you ever feel like you just have to, you know, just try and think ahead and, and really think combatively, offensively for, uh, for education?
1: Yeah, I mean, our, until, until earlier this year, there was a, a staff member here who, whose focus really was on getting out and you know working directly with teachers and, and doing that sort of positive work. And there are websites like Understanding Evolution and Understanding Science. Which are NSF-funded projects through the University of California Museum of Paleontology that provide a lot of great positive content for teachers who want to be teaching evolution well. Um, and our our job, and you know, and there are scientific societies, there are publishers, there are a lot of people doing doing great work to uh, to make material available for teachers who want to teach evolution well. And our focus at NCSE is really on on defending the teachers who are who might be getting in trouble because of what a parent is, is saying, or mm-hmm. uh, you know, a parent whose teacher is trying to teach creationism. And yeah, you know, we, we try to, to think about where, where the next conflict is likely to come from, and how we can get ahead of that, and how we can head it off. Uh, sometimes that's just working with a, a scientist who is seeing him or herself being misrepresented in the press, or his or her research being misrepresented. Yeah. you know someone someone writes a banner headline of you know new discovery overthrows all of all of evolution and we have to sort of help help walk that back and clarify that no it doesn't it just explains how it works <laughs> exactly and, you know, so but it's it's hard because a lot of what we do is by its nature uh is reactive and, and is is meant to be and there are other people who are doing great work to try to take the initiative and improve the quality of, of science education and of evolution education in particular. And we, we partner with them, but it's it's historically there are other people who, who we sort of let take that that role and, and our role is really the, the rear guard defense and, mm-hmm. and hoping that other people can take can take the lead in, in making things better uh in other contexts. Although we start, we we do things also, you know, teacher trainings and work with scientific societies and we're partners on the Understanding Evolution and Understanding Science website. So there's stuff that we do. I don't mean to, to make it seem like what we do is small, but
0: yeah, it, no. it keeps us
1: plenty busy to be working with, to, on, on the scale that we do. You know, there are 17,000 school districts around the country. We figure maybe 10 science teachers in each of those. Mm-hmm. Each of them largely autonomous. Uh, and, and the only way that we hear about what's happening in the classroom is if someone calls us and says, why, why did my kid come home with a creationist pamphlet? Or why is, what, what should I do about this parent who's telling me that I should be teaching uh, intelligent design in that classroom? Right. And it, it, stuff can go on for decades before we hear about it, before anyone in the community is bothered by the fact that creationism is being taught there. So it's, it's a constant challenge just to find out. You know, it's one thing to look at the standards. Every state's science standards. All 50 states have science standards now. All of them use the word evolution. All of them talk about it to at least some degree. Not in as much detail as we'd like, perhaps, in all cases. But over the last 10 years, the quality of the standards has been improving. But it's really hard to know how that's translated into change in how teachers are actually teaching evolution.
0: Right right because there's probably a a a, law, a large distance between the document that is the science standard for a particular state to the classroom and what's actually happening in the classroom and teachers are teachers are people and they're going to you know they're gonna they're going to teach they're, they're going to teach the way that they want to teach in the end
1: and they're going to teach according to the way that they were taught and if they yeah. were they were brought up in classrooms that didn't where evolution wasn't covered. And I mean one of the th- people who've done research on this have found that one of the, the best predictors of how much time a teacher spends teaching evolution in a high school classroom is how much time that teacher spent in evolution classes in college. The more coursework a teacher had done in evolution, the more time they spend talking about evolution in class. Which makes complete sense. Yeah. And so and it's 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 really common in teacher training programs and in basic biology, introductory biology classes, that to not have a required evolution course for mm-hmm. prospective biology teachers, to not integrate as evolution as thoroughly into introductory biology classes in college level as where, where we're training the next generation of teachers, um, as, as it could be. We're not modeling the things that we would like to see from high school teachers which means that there's this very, very long lag between when you train, the experience that a teacher has when they're a high school student or when they're a college student, and then the experiences that their students have before their students can go on and become high school teachers. Mm -hmm. Having change on that timescale, it can't be speedy. And there are things that we can do to try to encourage, to give training, to do other things, to, to reach out to those teachers and shorten that cycle but it's slow and the teachers are going to be responsive to their communities communities that are are more rural more uh fundamentalist in orientation people are not a teacher even if it's in the standards and it's in the textbook and they had a lot of training and they want to teach evolution it might be more trouble than it's worth or they might feel like it's more trouble than it's worth and they might back Mm -hmm. away from it in ways that we'd rather they didn't
0: yeah it's a it's it's a, it's fascinating how something that uh, you know as a as a scientist uh that if you if you learn it in a setting where it's you know there there isn't any any pushback against evolution um you know that it it's just a an integral part of biology and of all the sciences and uh it's it's just fascinating that it it goes from being something that seems like such a a basic part of science to something that is such a controversial issue in uh in in social circles it's just it's just amazing Thanks. yeah we're getting to the to the end of the hour um i was wondering i guess to to finish this off if there's you know any anything you, you mentioned earlier um, in the first half of the show talking about um, the fact the fact that people are 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 ruled by their emotions uh, a lot, and so a lot of times decisions that are made um, about science um, are not or or about topics in the sciences are not necessarily rational and there have been a lot of uh, writings about that recently i think uh, Chris Mooney wrote an article about it uh, in Mother Jones that came out last week. There was a uh, there was, uh, I think Ars Technica and and Nature had a uh, their Science Online NYC meeting last last week as well, or that where they they talked about um, controversial issues, um, and and how people play into these things. There's just a lot of writing about. Um, oh, I think there was another article about how politics and self-confidence or self-esteem play into people's um, understanding or acceptance of science. How how do we take all of these different uh, different psychological perspectives and try and you know try and get people talking to each other?
1: I think. I mean, for me, a lot of my experience was just, you know, going out to, to the school board meetings in Kansas and getting out of out of the university, out of the university town and listening to folks and, and talking to folks and, and seeing what worked and really just doing trial, trial and error and, and seeing what was effective at, at reaching out to folks and what wasn't effective. Uh, Chris Mooney, as you say, has a, a great article in, in Mother Jones this month that Builds on a lot of the, the psychological and uh, social psychology literature that has been developing around these ideas, uh, and and I, I think that this is an, an ongoing project that, that we can expect to see more of in the next few months and years from him in terms of popularizing that literature, because there is there is research that's been done on you know what works and what what connects with people and what doesn't connect with people and how do you how can you move people around these ideas that. I mean, evolution is not controversial because someone, because folks are sitting there looking and saying, "Yeah, I've looked at that tectonic fossil, and I have some concerns mm-hmm. about the the assessment of the the uh, you know the humeral joint and whether that's really the the proper assessment of the homology of these wrist bones." No, that's not what's going on, right? I mean, that it's evolution mm-hmm. is controversial because it affects people's self identity and. What does it mean to be human what if we're if humans are descended from other animals then what are the moral and metaphysical implications of this and if you're only talking about the fossils if you're only talking about well the molecular phylogeny says this it's it you're just going to be talking past people and it's going to be uh you have to somehow get the people's fingers out of the ears yeah. so that you can start that conversation. And then you can talk about the fossils, but you have to engage them on the issues that are really, that may be the subtext of the reason that they're coming to you and saying, you shouldn't be teaching evolution. Because they think that teaching evolution means teaching their kid to be mm-hmm. immoral and to, you know, I don't know. Yeah. And if you, if, you, if you don't talk about that, if you only say, well, let's just talk about evolutionary developmental biology for a while and the molecules and DNA, mm-hmm it's it's just not going to connect it's not going to make that that initial connection that will let you then talk about these other issues
0: all right well on that note i'd like like to thank you very much for joining me today thanks for talking about controversies talking about science talking about evolution and um and all of these issues that you seem to be very passionate about thanks for sharing on the on the show today
1: well thanks for having me on and thanks for everyone watching
0: yeah, you're welcome. And anybody out there who's interested in more information about um, about this topic, you can find uh, information at NCSE.com, which is the National Center for Science Education. And uh, that's where Josh works. Or you can go to his blog, which is called Thoughts from Kansas on Science Blogs, scienceblogs.com forward slash TFK. And Josh does some great blogging on that site um, if you haven't checked it out previously. I'm Dr. Kiki, and this has been Dr. Kiki's Science Hour. And be sure to tune in next week because, drum roll, I'm interviewing Dr. Michio Kaku. And we're going to have a, uh, it'll probably be a rerun next Thursday because the showtime is going to be next Tuesday morning, 9 a.m. Pacific time, noon Eastern time, uh, because we couldn't get Dr. Kaku, scheduled for this normal Thursday time slot. So we're going to be pre-recording the interview next Tuesday morning. So be sure to tune in if you want to catch it live. Let me know if you have any questions. We're probably going to be talking a lot about uh, The Physics of the Future, his new new book that's out recently. So uh, check that out next week. You can subscribe to past episodes if you subscribe to uh, Dr. Kiki's Science Hour in iTunes, video or audio format. You can also Catch past episodes at twit.tv forward slash Kiki. K-I-K-I. Thanks for tuning in to the Science Hour. I'm Dr. Kiki. Once again, you can find me online by Googling Dr. Kiki. All I ask is one hour a week. I hope that this hour made your world a lot more interesting. Thanks for watching.